Welcome to our weekly Catechism class. This lesson is a weekly look at the Heidelberg Catechism to help us to learn Christian doctrine with a warm and a practical application. Every lesson has an accompanying study guide. The web link to find that guide is in the episode notes. Now, let's start the class and learn the lessons. Welcome to our Catechism class extra. I just want to briefly outline some historical Christological errors. How people have tried to explain the person of Christ and gone badly wrong, gone astray. So that we can be aware of the dangers, many of which are still around in the modern church. And hopefully we can identify these dangers and avoid them. We remember the words of Paul in Romans chapter 16 and verse 17, where he wrote, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offences, contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. So to be fair, this podcast won't be for everyone. But if you're interested in church history, then stay with me and take a very brief look at some ancient and modern Christological fallacies, looking at some of the people who promoted them and some of the modern-day aberrations of doctrine that have been spawned by them. I'm Bob McAvoy. This is the Semper Reformata Podcast. So let's begin right away back in the very early days of the Christian Church. For errors surrounding the person and nature of Christ began to surface in the very earliest days of Christianity. And as we shall see, some of the New Testament literature may actually have been aimed at countering these false teachers. There are two errors that were common in first century Christianity. There were what we now know as the Ebionites and the Docetics. Now the Ebionites were a first century Jewish stroke Christian sect. Um, And they believed that Jesus was a man like any of us. That he was the natural son of Mary and Joseph. But a man who was especially anointed with the Holy Spirit. Anointed to be the last great prophet. And because of his righteousness and his obedience to the law... That man was adopted into the Godhead, so rejecting the essential doctrine of his eternal sonship. His pre-incarnate existence as the second person of the Godhead, as the Logos. So the Ebionites had no saviour. They had no theology of vicarious atonement, and their form of Christianity was little more than a religion of futile good works, striving to keep the Jewish law yet without the animal sacrifices that had characterised Jewish religion of that day. And then there were the Docetics. 
The ascetics were to some extent at the opposite end of the heretical scale from the Ebionites, where the Ebionites stressed only the humanity of Christ, the ascetics stressed his divinity. They believed that Jesus truly was God come into this world, but that God being a spirit could not take upon himself a human body. Remember, there was a strange prevailing belief in those days that spirit and matter were direct opposites, a dualism which thought of matter as being evil and spirit being good. It was a Greek idea, but commonplace nevertheless. So how could a spirit then, they argue, become a human being? And why would an exalted spirit even want to be a human being? So they put forward an idea that what the disciples were seeing when they looked at Jesus was not a form of matter, not a natural body like us, but what they would call a phenomenon. A body composed of some form of starry or astral substance that was well outside our imagination. The incarnate Christ then was a phantasm or of real but celestial substance. And the outcome of that was that when he suffered for us on the cross, those sufferings were not real. They were only apparent. So the ascetics were in fact proto-Gnostics. We'd looked at Gnosticism in an earlier podcast. It would be good if you can just to find that on the podcast app and listen to it again. In that podcast, we saw how this common Greek belief invaded early Christianity. How it turned some people away from the true faith. Check the episode notes for this podcast for links to the podcast on Gnosticism and the study guide on the blog. So to summarise, the ascetics believed in the pre-existence and divinity of Christ, but they denied his humanity. It may well have been heretics like the ascetics that John the Apostle was writing about in 1 John 4, verse 1-3. Let's just read those verses. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world a positive note. The fact that the person of Christ was actually being discussed and debated and his true nature defended by the church within a very short time of his death demonstrates to us that in the very earliest days of Christianity people knew that Christ's conception and birth were important issues, that his nature and personhood was complex and that some people were struggling to understand it and failing to see its doctrinal significance. That his true nature was so vigorously defended by the orthodox apologists, the apostles and the writers, shows that the early church knew and confessed and defended the biblical account of Christ's virgin birth. Now there's a lot to take in there. I'm going to pause for a moment or two, just to give you time to think about that and to look over the notes and to read the transcript on the blog.
let's move on in time a little bit. We're going to look at monarchianism. And monarchianism was at its simplest a stress upon the monotheistic nature of God. Christians are monotheists, as are the Jews. We believe in one God. But as we saw in an earlier podcast, God is triune. He is a trinity. He is three persons in one God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God. But in the second and third centuries AD, monarchianists denied the doctrine of an independent personal subsistence of the Logos, the second person of the Trinity and declared the sole deity of God the Father, the direct opposite of Orthodox Trinitarianism. Now, monarchianism fell broadly into two categories. There was dynamic monarchianism, and there was modal monarchianism. Let's look at dynamic monarchianism first. They believed that only the Father is God. Many of these heretics were adoptionists, a little like the Ebionites, but without the Jewish aspects of that sect. Jesus, for these people, was simply a good man, a very good man, a man who was adopted as God's son. Many of them would have believed that this adoption took place at his baptism at the River Jordan, when the voice was heard from heaven declaring him to be God's only begotten son, and he was empowered to do godlike things, with godlike wisdom and godlike power. Now you can see the problem here, because we are adopted sons of God. But Jesus, as we have already learned in a previous episode, was God's only begotten Son. And as we have seen before, the word begotten in the sense of God and the sense of relationships within the Godhead does not imply a time when he was born, but refers to the familial likeness the Son who is eternally begotten of the Father. One of the most colourful of the dynamic monarchianists was Paul of Samoseta. Paul was elected as Bishop of Antioch in AD 260, until he was condemned in 269 by a council of church leaders meeting at Antioch for his monarchianist views. Even after he was condemned by his fellow bishops, he was able to continue to dwell in the bishop's residence there at Antioch, thanks to the patronage of the Queen of Syria, Zenobia. That was a situation which continued until 272, when the Romans under the Emperor Aurelian removed Zenobia. It was the very first time that the secular authority had intervened at the request of church authorities to settle a church dispute. The emperor had declared that the legal right to the church building should be assigned to those to whom the bishops of Italy and Rome should communicate in writing. Rome was given some acknowledged authority over other churches, a very interesting development indeed. But Paul of Samoseta had an extravagant lifestyle. Since he didn't believe that Jesus is God, he saw absolutely no reason for hymns of praise to be raised to Jesus. Instead, he demanded that the church's praise be directed to himself. And when he would enter the pulpit, it would be to rounds of applause from the supporters, the so-called worshippers in the church. They would wave their hankies and they would cheer when he preached. Paul of Samoseta amassed great wealth, and not from honest sources either, and lived off the funds that he creamed from the church 
and had a vast sexual appetite too, and it was reported that he retained two young and beautiful women to satisfy his carnal desires. Now, I'm only bringing this to your attention because in some respect, Paul Samoseta's lifestyle mirrors the lifestyle of some of the modern celebrity pastors who discredit evangelicalism. Men and women nowadays who live extravagant lives, who draw vast incomes from what they claim is the Lord's work, who love the adulation and applause sometimes literally of the people who listen to their health and wealth prosperity gospel messages and who frequently seem to fall victim to sexual temptations, who bring their own testimony and the witness of the visible church into great disrepute. There's a second type of monarchianism, and it too has echoes in modern Christendom. We call it modal monarchianism. In the 3rd century AD, Sibelius of Rome put forward an idea that the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit were simply manifestations of God at different times. So in the Old Testament, God was acting in the mode of the Father. While Jesus was on earth, he was acting in the mode of the Son. And in the church period, God is manifesting himself in the mode of the Holy Spirit. So the Godhead is not three persons in one God, but one manifested to humanity in three persons at different times for different purposes. Another enthusiast for this heresy was a man called Praxius. No one really knows for sure who Praxius was, but his error was such that the early church apologist Tertullian of Carthage wrote a defence of orthodox Trinitarian Christianity called Against Praxius. Praxius thought that the Father and the Son were so much the same that we could say that God the Father had suffered on the cross, an error known as Patropatianism. In response, Tertullian's apology contains the memorable line, Praxius has done two bits of mischief at Rome. He has crucified the Father and put to flight the paraclete spirit. Again, there's a modern echo of this awful heresy. It's often known as oneness Pentecostalism, and it's simply a regurgitation of this ancient fallacy. If you look at a website with a statement of belief that says something like, The Trinity, we believe that God is one, and that he has manifested himself in the Bible as Father, Son and Holy Spirit. That's a fair indication that the church in question is modalist and that they do not actually believe in the Trinity and that marks them out as dangerously erroneous. One modalist who has gained great popularity in recent days is Bishop T.D. Jakes, an American televangelist who makes no secret of his modalistic views. His statement of faith on his website reads, God, there is one God, creator of all things, infinitely perfect and eternally existing in three manifestations, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. That's pretty blatant, isn't it? And there are more subtle hints too. A church may state something like, we believe in the existence of the one eternal, self-existing almighty God who is revealed to us in the scriptures as the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. That imprecise statement 
probably deliberately imprecise, falls well short of orthodox Trinitarianism. Another way to discover if a church has modalistic tendencies is just to simply attend a baptism service. These churches will be baptistic. So just listen to what the pastor says when they immerse a candidate for baptism. If he says, in the name of Jesus, instead of, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, there is every possibility that they are denying the Trinity and the proper personhood of Christ. A word of caution here. There are lots of people who attend modalist churches, who are genuine Christian believers, who are simply trusting in Christ for their salvation. Many of these churches actually have a strong evangelistic emphasis which belies their doctrinal abnormality. To be fair to the people in the pews, most of them will be totally unaware of their leader's strange and divergent views on Christology. Okay, let's pause just for a moment or two again, just to give you time to think again of what we've been saying. A lot of strange words and strange beliefs in that little section. So read over the notes, you'll find them on the blog page, and you'll find the connection, the link to that, in the episode notes. So let's move on. While we were singing that lovely psalm, I had to pause yet again to allow an overhead aeroplane to pass over the top of the studio pod. But we're going to look for a moment at Arianism. And we've already looked at Arius of Alexander and Arianism and the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD in a previous catechism class, where we learned about the eternal sonship of Christ. Arius too had attacked the person of Christ. He had denied the eternal sonship of the Logos with his oft-repeated catchphrase, there was a time when he was not. It was this error, and that error's rapid spread throughout the Roman Empire, that made the Emperor Constantine very worried about the possibility of a split in the Church. The church was an organisation that Constantine viewed as a possible way to unite the diverse people of his empire. So to clear up the matter, he instigated the Council of Nicaea, where the Trinitarian issue was settled in the visible church. But Arianism did not end at Nicaea. At the time of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, Arian monarchianism resurfaced as what we know today as Unitarianism. One of the first to propose a Unitarian theology was a man called Servetus, a Spanish physician. Now, Servetus was no fool. He discovered and correctly described the circulation of the blood. Servetus was a monarchianist who denied the creeds of the early church. On the Incarnation, he believed that the Son was the union of the divine Logos with the man Jesus, miraculously born from the Virgin Mary through the intervention of God's Holy Spirit. 
He published these ideas in a book called The Restoration of Christianity. And that book was what provoked his condemnation at Calvin's Geneva and his eventual execution by burning, a punishment which scars the record of the Genevan Reformation. In Poland, another man called Socinus spread Unitarianism, and the modern Unitarian churches still by and large look back to these two as being their reformers. And we put the word reformers there in inverted commas. Modern Unitarians placard their tolerance and their mantra of faith guided by human reason. After all, without a saviour, they have to strive to please God by their actions. They strive to be fundamentally decent people. They want to live to high standards, but their reliance on flawed, sinful human wisdom leads them well astray from biblical faithfulness. Unitarian churches and denominations can include people with non-biblical sexual lifestyles. Unitarian churches will support gay pride events. Unitarian churches will even believe that atheists can be Unitarians and find a home within a Unitarian church. It's next to impossible to obtain a statement of belief from Unitarian churches. Most of them literally believe nothing. One church states, we do not define for others what the word God means. For many, it just signifies what they be, believe to be of supreme worth. Now there's a meaningless statement of belief, if ever I heard one. So you can see where lack of doctrinal clarity leads. Once you cast doubt on an essential doctrine like the true nature and person of Christ, essential because of its importance for our salvation, then you will simply follow whatever cultural and social norms demanded by the pressure groups of modern society. When Paul explained the nature and purpose of the Christian ministry in Ephesians, he points out that pastors and teachers are to build up the faith of the saints so that they will not be susceptible to the moral and cultural and religious pressures of our postmodern societies. In Ephesians 4 and verse 11, down to verse 14, And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. God did not ordain ministers in the church to allow people to drift aimlessly, defining for themselves what God means to them. How utterly futile and unbiblical. How ridiculous. Let's pause. Let's reflect.
course, there are other Christological errors that have attacked doctrinal purity in the Church over succeeding years. I wouldn't have time in this podcast to go into these in detail, but just to briefly note them in passing. Apollinarius was a bishop in Syria in the 4th century. He was a staunch opponent of Arianism, but his keenness to defend the deity of Jesus and the unity of his person led him to deny the existence of a real, what he called a rational, human soul in Christ. But rather he believed that Christ's soul was replaced by the Logos. That error, known as Apollinarianism, was condemned by the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD. Then there was Nestorius, a monk from the early 5th century. The church at this time had begun referring to Mary as the mother of God, a title that Nestorius rejected because it seemed to deny Christ's humanity. He found it difficult to believe that God could be born in human flesh or that he could suffer and die. So to resolve his difficulties, he put forward the notion that Jesus was two distinct persons, both the human person and the divine person, each operating independently. So at one time, the divine persona would be evident, and at other times, the human persona. The Greek term was prosopon. It literally means a face. At one point, it would be the divine person seen working. At another point, it would be the human person seen working. The Council of Ephesus in AD 431 denounced Nestorianism as heretical, reaffirming Christ as one person with two natures. Eutyches of Constantinople He believed and taught that Jesus was totally different to the rest of humanity. He stressed the unity of Christ's nature to such an extent that Christ's divinity totally consumed his humanity. His illustration was that if you dropped a tiny amount of vinegar into the ocean, it would be totally consumed. In the same manner, Christ's divine nature simply swallowed up his human nature. More precisely, he thought that Christ was of two natures, but not in two natures. Talk about wordplay. He thought that Jesus was of the same substance with the Father, but not of the same substance with man. Complicated or what? Eutychianism was rejected at the Fourth Ecumenical Council in Chalcedon in 451 AD. And this statement of faith known as the Chalcedonian Creed makes very clear just who Jesus is and what the scriptures teach us about him. With the exception of one or two statements which we might find difficult, the Creed of Chalcedon states the orthodox position. It reads as follows. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach people to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable, rational soul and body, consubstantial, coessential with the Father, according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us, according to the manhood, in all things like unto us, but without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father, according to the Godhead. And in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, 
Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. Now, I don't want you to think that all of these Christological errors have been confined to the early church. I want to come right up close to modern times. For in 2019, a Franciscan monk and Roman Catholic mystic called Father Richard Rohr, that's spelled R-O-H-R, wrote a book published by SPCK called The Universal Christ. Rohr is a modern-day Gnostic a man who seems to think that his own private thoughts and imaginations are far more relevant and important in understanding the nature of God than the Bible is. He runs an organisation in the United States of America called the Centre for Action and Contemplation. And among his many admirers, he can count people like Oprah Winfrey, Melinda Gates, and someone who calls himself Bono, a musician of some repute apparently. Rohr's views on theology are far from orthodox. He's a pantheist. Pantheist is someone who believes that God is in everything. He can speak of brother moon and brother fire and so on. It sounds totally crazy to those of us who are actually sane. But what are his views and beliefs on Christ and Christology? Well, Rohr believes that we should separate the word Christ from the person called Jesus. He's quite scathing about how Western Christianity and American evangelicalism in particular speaks about Jesus Christ as if he were a person with a name just like us. Jesus was a man to Rohr. Christ, on the other hand, is God in everything. So yes, God was in Jesus, just like he is in the birds and the trees and in you. Rohr actually believes in the Big Bang theory of creation and he believes that the Christ became part of creation at the Big Bang. He says that at the moment God fused with nature, with matter, the two became one and Christ was formed. He doesn't believe in the fall of man. In fact, he openly ridicules it and mocks it. He laughs at the very notion that the God who created this vast universe would be worried at all, let alone offended, by two ordinary human beings 
eating an apple, to use his very words. And because he doesn't believe that mankind is fallen, he doesn't believe that we need a saviour. So the death of the man Jesus must have been just a good example for us. He certainly doesn't believe in vicarious atonement, that Jesus died for our sins at Calvary. His idea of salvation is that we should simply realise that God is already surrounding us in nature, and therefore we should unite with him by meditation, by saying Christ in everything, everywhere, at all times. Needless to say, he doesn't accept that there's going to be a second coming of the Lord. He believes that Jesus has already returned. He argues, within you, you are the return of Christ. So with no fall and no salvation and no future judgment, Rohr is free to conclude that we should all see Christ in each other, regardless of our religion, and that we should have fluffy love and respect for each other, regardless of our sins, our lifestyles or our choices. And so he suggests that this is how we can rid the world of nastiness and homophobia and racism and gender inequality and so on and so on. Now, if you've been able to follow some of the train of Rohr's thoughts, and I suggest it's way off beam, then you will actually see how close Rohr is to ancient Gnosticism, that very early church heresy. Like the Gnostics, Rohr has a secret knowledge, a Gnosis, that we don't have. So he speaks about his Franciscan tradition of reading the Bible. He was heavily influenced by the Cistercian order of monks, even though he is a Franciscan. And the Cistercian order of monks is an openly Gnostic sect within Catholicism. They believe in spirit-matter dualism and strange, unbiblical notions about the Godhead. What he doesn't believe is that the Bible is the infallible, inspired word of God. And he certainly doesn't accept the classic Christian statements of doctrine, our creeds and our reformed confessions. Yet you will find Richard Rohr's books freely available on Amazon and perhaps even in some Christian bookshops. He's a prolific writer. And all his books will teach you spirituality that calls itself Christian and yet denies the Christ of the Bible. A dangerous man. He looks like an old gentleman, man with a beard and a softly spoken voice who whispers in your ear all these dreadful heresies. What does the Bible have to say about Father Richard Rohr? I think First John 2, verse 21 to 22, speaks exactly about Gnostics like him. It says, I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. I think if John the Apostle were to come across Richard Rohr today, he would point his finger at him and openly accuse him of being a liar. Well, we're nearly finished. In our Catechism class for Lord's Day 14, question 35, I briefly mentioned a heresy called Canoticism. That's a more modern-day Christological error, or at least modern in the sense that it was widely believed 
in liberal Christianity in the downgrades, doctrinal downgrades of the 19th and early 20th centuries. The theory, you remember, was that when Jesus was born at Bethlehem, he laid aside more than just his majesty, but that he laid aside his divinity, so that when he was on earth, he was only a man, not God. It was the favoured doctrine of the theological liberals and the higher critics who denied the virgin birth and the miracles and the resurrection of Christ. It was a direct attack on the doctrine of vicarious atonement too, for the canonic Jesus was neither sinless or divine. He was just a good man who would be unacceptable as our representative on the cross, unacceptable to God. We'll deal more fully with how Christ's nature as both fully God and fully man benefits us in our next Catechism class in question 36. Now we have merely skimmed the surface of these historical attacks on the person of Christ. And it won't end there. For a final recent example, Pastor Rob Bell, a modern-day heretic from the so-called emergent church, within recent years in his absolutely dreadful book entitled Love Wins, launched a vicious attack on the person of Christ and the doctrine of atonement. It just goes on and on, and it will do so until Christ comes, the devil doing his work, attacking the faith, attacking the church, often using false shepherds, pastors who are wolves in sheep's clothing, and teachers to do his nefarious work. Paul warned us about this in Acts chapter 20. In verse 28 to verse 30, he says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves, and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Well, once again, many thanks for listening. I think if you've made it to the end, you deserve a clap on the back. Well done. I'll see you at next week's Catechism class. May the Lord bless you.